Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. I hope you have listened to our past podcast conversations, and if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. Be on the lookout as well for my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, which is being published in September 2020. Our podcast today is sponsored by Cabot Risk Strategies. Based in Woburn, Massachusetts, Cabot Risk Strategies has created innovative and customized insurance strategies for individuals and families, businesses, nonprofits, commercial real estate, and public entities. Cabot's client base continues to expand, both within the region and within the markets they serve. And if you're looking for customized insurance services and solutions, contact Cabot at 800-222-5963 or visit them at www.cabotrisk.com. I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. Nick Marks is a therapist, statistician, and has an unusual expertise in happiness. He started out doing quality of life statistics and shifted to well-being and happiness for the UK government and other national governments, and has done a couple of TED Talks on how we measure and improve happiness at work. What a perfect topic for our conversation today. He launched his statistical tool and product, Friday Pulse, in 2019. Hello, Nick. Hi, Ed. How are you? I'm good today. Thanks. Fantastic. Well, I think our listeners know that I'm calling from a town a little bit north of Boston. How about you? Where are you today? I'm in Dorsetshire in England, so quite close to Stonehenge, and it's very cold today. (laughs) Sorry to hear that. Well, I'm sure the warm weather is right around the corner. We've probably already had summer in the UK. We always have a bit of variable weather. (laughs) Sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear that. So, Nick, I did a very brief introduction of you, but I'm sure our listeners would love to hear a little bit more. Can you tell us a little bit more about your career and what you're doing today? Yeah, so I'm a statistician by trade. You know, I was good at mathematics at school, and I ended up at Cambridge reading mathematics really before I made a decision in life. And I actually discovered I didn't like it at university. It was too pure. And I started to realize that I was an applied statistician. I wanted to work on real problems or the solutions of them, really. And so I started specializing in that. And that's really where my career started out, doing health statistics, then quality of life statistics. But my mother was a family therapist. So I kind of did that on the side. And I trained as a therapist. And I really like people and have always been a sort of people person. So I ended up sort of doing a what sounds like a perfect mix of them, but was quite random at the time, was just starting to think about people's experience of life, their well-being, their happiness, and ended up working in a think tank in London in the policy world, working out how and advising governments on how to measure population well-being, and did a lot of work that about 10, 15 years, and ended up being surprisingly successful. Uh, you know, I was kind of the slightly long-haired guy in the corner talking about happiness and well-being in this very serious policy think tank. But it, it struck a chord with people, particularly when we had data around it. And I eventually did a TED talk on that in 2010. And then following that, I thought I'd do a slight change and change context. Policy is quite slow moving. And in some ways, I found it quite frustrating, you know, feeling like we had ideas, but it was hard to get them implemented. 
So I thought, well, the world of business is into new ideas. And uh, and I actually also, like governments, think businesses measure people's experience of work really poorly. And I, I thought I've got something to offer there. So I started out working in that area. And as you said, we've just launched last year a new product platform called Friday Pulse, which measures and improves people's happiness at work. So for a lot of our listeners, this industry, I guess, of happiness I don't know if it sounds like an industry, right? So is it a place of where work gets done? Is it an industry? I mean, how does somebody do work in the arena of measuring happiness? It is sort of an industry. And and I think some parts of it, even I don't like, you know, in that I think there's some magical thinking that goes on that, you know, that sort of somehow we can wave a wand and people will be happier. Or if we just sort of buy table tennis tables or pool tables and, you know, put beanbags around, everyone's going to be happier. And what I'm really talking about is the culture at work, is the way that people behave towards each other, the way they respect each other or don't. And really, businesses have always been interested in the employee experience. I mean, we had a lot of work in the 1970s around employee satisfaction that got replaced with engagement. And I would say that happiness the an employee experience are the better way to think about it. And it's not that I'm against engagement. It's just that if I ask someone, are you engaged at work? They don't really know how to answer the question. And also probably if you're being cynical, engagement is really just a code word for productivity. And businesses are interested in making people more productive. Of course they are. But if a business says, you know, I want you to be more engaged, it feels a bit like they want more out of you for the same money. And so when you start saying, I want to create a job that you enjoy or give you a good experience or you feel happy, then actually it feels more like it's trying to give something to you and make your work better. And that feels a much more fair deal to be involved in. And of course, the enlightened leader will know that that leads to high performance. In some ways, it's a retake on an old thing. And in other ways, it really does have some new ideas in it. You know, somebody like myself, Nick, who is undereducated in this arena of measuring happiness in the workplace might think that a person will feel happier at work if they feel braver, that they look back and have said things that they needed to say or have done things that they needed to done. And I'm just wondering in the work you've done, if the topic of bravery or aspects of courage or bravery have risen to some degree, or is it even something that you look at to assess people's happiness? Bravery isn't a word I personally use very much, but resilience, grit, determination, which I think are all very related to bravery, are all in there. And I think one of the things we have is different timescales to which we think about our experiences. And I think often people who end up being frustrated or feel like they're not achieving or whatever is because they've taken a series of small steps for the easy life, for the sort of the thing that feels perhaps will make them most happy in the moment but actually it's at the sacrifice of longer term gains and that's exactly where bravery comes in and courage is like actually being able to see beyond the immediate into what are the things that could be gained from a change here and and changes are never easy and never easy to stand up to people never easy sometimes to be true to what you kind of know if it doesn't fit with the sort of status quo at the moment and those sort of things are really about medium term better experiences sometimes at the cost of short-term ones. Well, you used a phrase that I like and that others have talked about, which is this kind of small step or baby step transition, right? If you see something you want to do or there's something you need to say, it's not always a huge leap from where you are to what you need to do, but it could be baby steps in an effort to make progress in that direction. Do you see that as an influencer in people's happiness at work and or even their ability to be braver? 
Yes, I think that baby steps is a great way to start. And in fact, I always think that huge changes are impossible, <laughs> you know, in, in, in the sense we need to move towards them. And and sometimes I talk as a statistician, I sometimes use the language of heuristics. I don't know if you're familiar with that or the difference between a heuristic and an algorithm. But the difference really is that an algorithm, you have a very clear idea of where you want to get to and you're trying to plot a route to get there. And it's what a lot of AI and machine learning is based upon. You know what the outcome is. The problem with a lot of human things is that we don't know exactly what the outcome is. And so a heuristic is much better, which is like, what's your next step? Is it improving the situation? Is it is it making it worse? What are the dimensions of improvement you want to look at? There might be multiple dimensions. How do you do that? And I think that heuristics are you taking baby steps and then checking. You can't just take the baby step. You then have to take the step, check. Is it actually better? Is it not? What are the consequences of it? And adjust. So adjustment and business is all a lot about, you know, noticing what's going on in the environment, acting and then adjusting. And yeah, that seems to me a critical way that we can improve things. Well, I think that's a huge piece of advice, actually, Nick, for people who are listening in respect to bravery in the workplace, which is, you know, how do I plot in some ways where I am today and where I need to be in the future, whether it's a conversation I need to have with a boss or an activity that I need to do in the workplace. But, you know, how do I plot kind of baby steps? Because the other advantage then is you can kind of measure your progress with each baby step. Am I moving in the right direction? Does it feel good? Are others responding in the way that I hope they would respond? And I can also pivot and alter my direction if it's not unfolding in the way that I would hope you know, that this activity might unveil itself. Yes. I mean, in many ways, being open to sort of experimenting is the key. And in fact, interesting, this is very much the way that neuroscientists think of emotions and feelings working in humans, which is that there's a very good neuroscientist I like called Antonio Damasio. And he talks about that feelings help us monitor our environment. They motivate us to act and then they help us adjust our actions. And the monitoring part is like, there's a sort of ancient signal in us, you know, is it good, bad? You get it when you meet someone for the first time. Are they a friend or a foe? And mm-hmm. you, you come to an instant opinion about them. And it's basically, should I approach them, spend more time with them? Should I avoid them? Now, it's not always correct. It's definitely open to biases, but it's sort of 70% right. And we, and we definitely have the feeling there. And so then it motivates us to act. That's the approach avoid, or you can get much more, gets much more nuanced about that. You know, you can be curious about what they're doing. You can be laughing with them, enjoying them, but you can be frightened of them, whatever it is. There's emotions that take us through that. The adjust bit is the bit that I think is sometimes underappreciated. Once we've acted, we need to keep checking. So there's people that you meet that you don't like to begin with. Actually, you find you really do. And, and that's an adjustment and vice versa. You know, the number of people that we've got on very well with and then we sort of felt oh maybe they weren't so great or we dated or found that you know whatever it is you know you can find it and it's that adjustment and it's always being open to learning which i think is the key well i love that and this is one of the big questions for us on this podcast which is what is bravery is it a feeling is it an emotion is it a tactic right is it a strategy you know you know what is this thing called bravery because we can definitely feel it when we're not demonstrating it and you know our body reacts in a certain way when we're not saying something that we need to say or not doing something that we need to do and there could be the opposite reaction when we are saying what we need to say and are doing what we need to do right but i don't know if you have a thought or an observation on whether bravery itself is a feeling an emotion an activity any quick thoughts or reactions on that question nick i think it's a very energizing experience isn't it and i think in a way the opposite of bravery which i don't know whether you talk about 
cowardness or whatever we tend to be lower energy and sort of you know keeping our head down whereas when we are brave there's something about you know our shoulders go back and we stand up so it's got a lot of confidence involved in it and you know certainly when people who talk about using your strengths and our strengths can differ between us but when you're using your strengths you're feeling very mobilized and energetic so i i think that bravery is definitely an energy state it's definitely linked to activity you know i don't think you can be doing nothing and being brave well except i suppose no because i think then you'd be resisting there can be a bravery and resistance but that's an energetic thing as well so so i, I would think of it as, it's definitely in this space of emotions and emotions are the word emove comes from the latin or greek actually i'm not quite sure emove move out so there's an energy to our emotions and there's definitely an energy to bravery and the and the activities it involves and in some ways there may be a spectrum on one end there's the energizing aspect of bravery right this energy state of saying what needs to be said or doing what needs to be done but on the other end there's a de-energizing feeling when you don't say what needs to be said or don't do what needs to be done and the emotions and reactions you have to that. Again, I haven't studied this deeply, but it just feels like there's a spectrum there and you can fall in any place on that spectrum depending on what the topic is, who the person is, what the situation is that either energizes you to do something that takes bravery or has you not do what needs to be done and feel de-energized. When you think of the word bravery, are there any words other than resilience, grit, and determination that you mentioned earlier? Any other words or phrases come to mind when you think about bravery in the workplace? Uh, authenticity definitely does. Being brave is something about being true to yourself and your values. I think of an image of, you know, standing up. You think of the brave person standing up, you know. You think of that extraordinary image from Tiananmen Square when that guy was standing in front of the tank, <laughs> which seems to be one of the most courageous things I've ever seen in my life. You know, but, or standing up to speak, or you know, there's not many brave acts that are done lying down in bed, are there? Sitting <laughs> down, there's a there's a sort of confidence of it, and and there's something about alignment. I think alignment between you know your actions and your values, and your beliefs. Yeah, so I'd see those sort of things. Fantastic. And how about a story, Nick? Is there a story that you'd love to share with our listeners that where bravery played a role in your career or something that you did or didn't do in the workplace? Yeah, I can think of a couple. They normally involve me letting go of trying to be the nice guy. <laughs> and, you know, I think I've been probably like many men, tried to be nice in a sort of reaction to the fact I found the world's faintly misogynist, you know, hierarchical. And so, you know, when I was a young man, I sort of didn't really know how to be a man. And when I started being a leader, I think I tried to please everybody a bit too much, including clients and including employees. And I got to a real dilemma. This is about 15 years ago when I was working at the think tank where we had a successful project running on well-being. And I think it was the arts, actually, uh, well-being and the arts. And we were working with another consultant, external consultant. He'd introduced the work to us. My team really didn't like working with this guy, even though we were making good money on it. We, you know, And so eventually I had to fire the client. <laughs> and I, I hadn't done that before. As I say, I'm a bit of a people pleaser. So I found that difficult to do. But my team was so pleased when I stood up for them and did it. You know, I did get a, a sort of people pleasing return on it too, but I, I knew it was the right thing to do. 
And that was probably even more compounded later when I had to make people redundant for my business because we had a change of strategy and a pivot and I had people in a team that I, I really didn't need that team anymore and I liked them. And and I had to get to that point of like effectively making them redundant. And my father was a business guy and he was still alive at that time. He was quite close to death, actually, he wasn't well. But it was, and I think of this as the last good bit of advice I got from my father. And I, I went to him and, you know, he's sitting in his chair and I said to him, oh, dad, I've got this very difficult decision to make at work, you know, about making people redundant. And we talked about it a bit and he went, it's not a difficult decision, Nick. It's an easy decision. It's just difficult to implement. <laughs> <laughs> and it yeah. just went, he just went, yeah, that's it, isn't it? Um, so, so, you know, I made the decision the next day and then I got on with the difficulty, you know, and I was avoiding the difficulty by saying it was the decision that was difficult. It wasn't. I, I knew what I had to do. And I think that is sometimes bravery is knowing what you had to do, even though it's difficult and doing it. Well, look, I think there's a couple of lessons there. Going back to your first story, Nick, with the client that you had to fire, some others have define bravery as when the need to do something exceeds the importance of not doing it, right? So up to that point, not doing it exceeded the need to do it. And there were all these reasons to not terminate the client, not terminate the client, the income, the relationship, the business, et cetera. And then at some point, it sounds as though, and I'm not attempting to put words in your mouth, but it sounds as though the need to do something exceeded those reasons. And now it became more important to take a difficult and complex step to terminate the relationship rather than maintain the revenue and the relationship and the activities. Is that a little bit about how you were feeling at that time? Yes, definitely. And of course, it, it, sometimes it's difficult to assess the importance and the, the needs, you know, because they're different shapes and sizes. So, you know, one was about really the morale of my team, respecting my team. And then the other side was, you know, cash flow, revenue and, and keeping the client happy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those are those are all very important things. Yeah, <laughs> and how you wait though? There's something in the waiting of those things, isn't that? You know, I'm thinking statistically now, waiting. You know, how much you how much you give value to those. So you know, there are all sorts of other people that just would have put the customer, the client first, and the revenue first, and gone with that. Sit, suck it up, team. Uh, whereas I probably went earlier with that decision than many people would have done. Right. Like, uh, yeah, I'm not saying that's more brave. I'm just saying it's probably. And I, but I think it's an expression of my values, isn't it? And and, and your values only really come to mean something when they trade off against each other <laughs> and then you work out where you know where your values really are <laughs> right right in your second story you know i think you had a great observation which i think is true more often than not i'm not saying it's always true but is this belief that bravery is complicated that it's hard that it's difficult right that bravery isn't easy because if it was easy we'd do it all the time and yet you know, in my client experience over the last 15 years, everybody has stories and situations where they don't feel that they showed the bravery that they needed to show. And it has had some kind of impact, whether professional or personal on them. And so I think for our listeners, it's recognizing that, you know, bravery is complicated and it's not easy to do. Yeah. And you're often stepping into an unknown. Yeah. And so the known is well, by its definition, known, but it's there's a security or safety in the known, and the unknown is more unsafe. I mean, this is a purely personal story, but you know, when I left a marriage, I was stepping into the unknown, mm -hmm. and a lot of people said to me it was very, very brave to do because I I wasn't going to another relationship or anything. I was just saying this this doesn't work for me, 
and that was taking the risk that your life would get better. And, and of course, it did. But it, it's not easy to do that. And there's a lot of people that sort of stay in jobs, in relationships, you know, because they don't have, in a way, the courage. But of course, my courage was supported by all sorts of other things. You know, the, the people are more difficult decisions. I had financial security, you know, so that that helped a lot. But it, you know, but it's still stepping into the unknown is inherently scary. Well, and using that heuristic model from earlier, another level to add to it is options, right? That as you decide what you want to do, you also look at, well, what are the options that can come out of this? You know, what might happen? And you identify all of the options that can happen, both good and bad. And hopefully your pivot can help you navigate those effectively, which I hope is what you have been experiencing. Certainly. And I think actually writing things down is very good because often you'll find that the losses and the gains are, it's very clear what you should do. Right. You know, right. write it down because you're, you're holding on to the loss and you're not appreciating the gains enough or, or, or vice versa. You, you know, often it's much clearer than you think it is. Well, 90% of the people I've worked with would say that once they did what they know they needed to do or say what they needed to say, they felt much, much better. So it yeah. does have a, a positive impact. So Nick, thank you so much for your time today. I think your insights and observations were you know, deeply, deeply important to our listeners. So thanks again. Thank you. And do folks have, are there ways that folks can get in touch with you? Are there email addresses or phone numbers or websites that you can share with our listeners to help them connect with you? Yeah, you can find out what we do at fridaypulse.com, which is a, it's a system for measuring and improving team happiness. And you can follow me on LinkedIn. Just find me, Nick Marks. There's no pay on Nick. It's quite easy to find. I, I post there quite a lot. And I post on my own website, which is nickmarks.org. Yeah, and I post about all things happiness and with a statistical angle, really. <laughs> Fantastic. And for all those listeners who are in the United States, it's N-I-C. Yeah. Not N-I-C-K. <laughs> so. I, I think it's that's the normal way in the UK, N-I-C-K. And I, oh, it is? I okay. Because, you know... When I was young, I thought I wanted to be different. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, Nick, thanks again for your time today. It was really great speaking with you. Perfect. Thanks, Ed. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week. And we hope you join us next week as we further explore being brave at work. We also remind you to subscribe to our podcast at bebraveatwork.com and or download and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple, Overcast, CastBox. We are everywhere. Do you have something to say yet are not saying it? Do you have something to do yet are not doing it? Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.